All right, well, good morning. Good morning. Let me find my place here. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. It is good to be back with you all. It's been actually over a year. Center myself here. Uh, I went back and looked. It was January of last year since I taught last. So we were back in Matthew chapter 26 at that point. So, <laughs> um, always exciting to be here, but I, I don't think I have been as excited as I am this morning um, about the material. So I don't know what that's going to mean for you. If, if I veer from teaching into preaching, well, you'll just have to come along for the ride. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Uh, I want to start this morning with uh, just talking for a moment about the D word. Probably not that word. Not divorce. Not Donald Trump. I want to talk about doctrine for a moment. Doctrine. For the past number of weeks now, really going back to probably the beginning of December, Pastor Peter and, and David have been teaching us doctrine, whether or not you've realized it or not. Each week they have come and given us a piece, um, a component, specifically of the doctrine of God. And you remember these things, God's aseity, his omniscience, his omnipotence immutability, God's sovereignty, and for the past few weeks now, God's righteousness, all within the context of his love. And I've really appreciated how they've stressed why these things are practically important to us, right? And I, and I want to just put my own exclamation point on that, if I can, just very briefly, because doctrine, biblical doctrine is a good thing. Despite what baggage that word may carry for you, it is a good thing. But there's a risk here. There's a risk for me because I know how I'm wired personally. But there's, there's probably a risk for others as well. And the risk is this. That we would come into settings like this and hear these glorious realities, but that we wouldn't appropriate them for ourselves. That we wouldn't bring them into our lives where they have impact and meaning. In, into the substance of of our faith. The risk is that these things would remain merely intellectual, but these things are not meant to be mere knowledge, as, as though this were a, a science class and we're studying the planets or something. The doctrine of God, his character, his attributes, his disposition toward us, these are the fundamental realities of the universe, and they are meant to sustain and strengthen and encourage and for us to build a foundation upon which when the storms of life come and you all know they come when when the doctor says it's cancer or when the pain of watching a child go astray comes or when temptation comes when when satan tempts us to despair in that moment we will know something about this god we serve and by the Holy Spirit's power, be able to stand firm so that when we, when we come to church on Sunday mornings and sing lyrics like, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay, those won't just be lyrics. There will be meaning and impact behind them. So doctrine is a good thing. I love doctrine, not for knowledge's sake, but because by it, I'm able to see God more clearly. And quite frankly, I don't know how you survive without that. And so I pray that this morning's lesson would serve us in this way as we continue to look at this truth 
that God is righteous. And, and really, I hope that for most of us in here this morning, this will be a review session. That for, for, for many of us, that we would be encouraged to be reminded of these things. But perhaps for, for a few of us in here, maybe some, that these would be new things. Uh, but I pray that by these things you would be ministered to, the Holy Spirit would come and speak to us, and that in our midst God would be glorified this morning. So last week, Pastor Peter presented us with a conundrum, he called it. He used a big word. I think Ms. Jean helped him with that. <laughs> right? A conundrum, he called it. He said that, that God, before the foundation of the world, set his electing love on a people for himself in order to adopt them and bring them into his family. And you can look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 for that. And that God is absolutely passionate about pursuing this end. It will happen. And yet, we, those, who've, those who God has set his eternal designs of salvation upon, we are in no condition to be welcomed into God's presence. We are the opposite of righteous. We're sinners. Isaiah 64, 6 diagnoses our condition well. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And that's actually the PG version there. If you read the literal text, it says something much more disturbing. And because God is righteous, His perfect justice demands that sin be punished, not welcomed by a holy God. And so the conundrum is this. Just as God is passionate about accomplishing His eternal plans of redemption and saving a people for Himself... He is also absolutely passionate about displaying the fullness of his righteousness in the punishment of sin. So these, these two designs of God, if you will, at least from the cheap seats, are seemingly at cross purposes. And I use that word very intentionally. They're, they have from the beginning been destined to a cataclysmic intersection. And I hope you know where that happened at. It happened on a cross, on Golgotha's hill, where the Son of God was crucified. And, and we're going to the cross this morning. I'll just go ahead and tell you. We're going to get there. But the question we need to deal with first is this. How can a holy, righteous, just God welcome into His family unrighteous sinners? That's the question. And it really is the question. How can a perfectly righteous God, a God who is holy, 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 have a relationship with, have fellowship with perfectly unrighteous human beings? And I'll just go ahead and warn you in case you don't know, the world does not care about this problem. A secular worldview could not care less about such things. Oh, they care about problems, so, so-called problems. Our culture, our society, day after day is just full of noise about problems. But I would submit to you this morning, they are not problems in light of the question, what will you do when you find yourself standing before a righteous God, stained through and through by the corruption of your sin? That's a problem. That's the problem of humanity. And it's a problem for someone who desires to see God rightly. For someone who cares that God's name be exalted and gloried in. And thankfully, God's word is not silent 
about this question. From beginning to end, the scriptures address specifically this question. It's what Job, remember Job? The Old Testament, it's what Job captured so well in his agony when he cried out, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? That's, that's our question. And it's the same question the Apostle Paul spends so much time explaining in many of his letters and in a very unique way in his letter to the Romans. And so that's where I want us to go this morning. Romans chapter 1. If you're not there already, you can go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 1. To answer our question, we have to go to the very heart of the Christian gospel. We have to go to the core of what it means to be saved. And I don't think we can do better than by starting in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. What Paul points to here initially in these two verses, he's going to come back to again and again as his central theme in this letter. These are massive verses. Massive verses. Paul writes in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, now, Pastor Peter already hinted at it last week, if you were here. The phrase, the righteousness of God, there in verse 17, that's the key. That's the key to our puzzle. The righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. Before Martin Luther... The German monk, the 16th century German monk, theologian, before he was converted, before he began to make a name for himself and speaking out against the church in Rome, Martin Luther actually hated verse 17. He hated it. Listen to what Luther wrote. In spite of the ardor of my heart, I was hindered by the unique word in the first chapter of Romans, the righteousness of God. I hated the word righteousness of God because in accordance with the usage and custom of the teachers, I had been taught to understand it philosophically as meaning, as they put it, the formal or active righteousness according to which God is righteous and punishes sinners. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my works. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus, a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience, but meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular passage of Paul, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. Day and night, I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, for Luther, he knew something about the righteousness of God. He knew God was holy and just. He knew that God demands that we be righteous. He knew that God's law requires perfect obedience. And he thought that when when Jesus came... And began to to teach and preach things like the Sermon on the Mount where he fully explicates the law. He gets to the true heart and meaning of the law. 
And when Jesus summarized the law by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, Luther understood him to be presenting the full, unmitigated, righteous requirement of God. As if in the Old Testament we're given a glimpse of God's justice through things like the Ten Commandments, but now, through Jesus, we're we're given the whole display of God's righteousness. For Luther... Romans 1.17 meant that the gospel brought the full weight of God's mandate that we be righteous as he is righteous. Imagine good news that tells you you have to be utterly perfect. That's not good news. So Luther hated this verse. To him it meant misery. He would spend hours and hours in confession and doing acts of penance. But as soon as he was able to attain some small level of peace he would remember another sin he had committed. He would realize there there was a moment where he had not loved God with all of his heart. So this brought him agony. Luther had it wrong, at least initially. He would come to see where he had it wrong. And what he eventually saw would fuel the fires of of his heart throughout the entire Protestant Reformation. So this morning, I want to lay out what Paul is saying here In these two verses, in the opening chapter of Romans, what Luther did come to see as glorious truth. But remember, these are are only opening statements for Paul. He's going to go on and explain them fully for about the next 11 chapters or so. So when Paul begins to explain why it is that he's not ashamed of the gospel, in fact, why it is that he's obligated and eager to preach the gospel to anyone who will listen, if you jump back up into verses 14 and 15, He says it's because the gospel is literally the power of God to save those who believe. So let's just notice a few things right off the bat. First, Paul actually begins by arguing against any notion that the gospel is a requirement. That it's a to-do list. That it's something we can strive for, generate within ourselves. No, Paul says that this is the power of God originating in God. Coming from, flowing out of God. The gospel is His power. Second, notice that this power of God acts on human beings in such a way as to save them. As to actually bring salvation to them. And third, who are the ones saved by this power of God? Those who believe. Those who have faith. So Paul is sketching out some very big realities here in verse 16. He connects the idea of salvation originating in God, coming from God as the power of God, going to sinners who believe, those who have faith. And he doesn't clarify any of this just yet. He just says, that's the gospel. That's the good news. But then as a word of explanation, likely knowing that questions would uh, would arise even at this early point, He offers verse 17. He says, For, or because, in it, meaning in the gospel, in this thing that is the power of God to save those who believe, to save sinners who have faith, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Your translation may say from faith to faith. Now you might say, how does that explain anything, Paul? That doesn't sound like an explanation to me. That's actually a good question. We need to ask questions like that. We need to be willing to stop and stare and think. Remember what Paul told Timothy? Think about what I'm telling you. 
And the Lord will grant understanding. So let's, let's do that together. We know what the righteousness of God is. We've studied that for now three or four weeks, right? Luther knew what the righteousness of God meant. For him, it meant he was in trouble. It meant he was unrighteous in front of a righteous God. But Paul says that this is good news. He says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So faith apparently has some revealing capacity to it. Faith is some sort of catalyst to bring about the revelation of the righteousness of God. But, but Luther believed that this was sort of saying that God was yanking the covering off of, his, off, off of God's righteousness. And that was a terrifying sight for him. But watch what, watch what Paul does here. Watch what he says about these sinners who need saving. Watch what happens to them when they believe, when they have faith. And Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I just want to say, hold on Paul, wait, wait just a second. You lost me there. How did these sinners who need salvation earn that title? Or did they earn that title? How, how did they go from not having any righteousness of their own to now being called righteous? How did that happen? And the answer is in that little phrase, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. What, what Paul is saying is that in the gospel, listen to this, in the gospel, God himself provides the very thing he demands. Namely, his own righteousness. I can just imagine Luther's eyes growing wide when he began to see this. We need to see this. And this happens, this happens at the initial moment of faith. From faith as a legal declaration of God for all time to the very end of our faith-filled lives that we are credited with a righteousness that is not our own. And because of that, we are accepted by God. Can you just feel the weight being lifted here? This is good news. This is the, the center point. This is critical to understand what it means to be a Christian. We need this. I need this. You need this. How will we stand firm if we don't even know what it is we're standing on? Are you going to stand on your own attempts? Your own righteousness? That doesn't sound like good news. So back to our question for just a moment. How can a just God save unjust sinners? The short answer from these two verses is because he provides us with the very righteousness he demands. Now Paul is going to go on and unpack this reality and expound on it for the next 11 chapters or so. But can we just stop and bask in this for a moment? This is gloriously good news. This should be on Fox and CNN. Right? This should be scrolling across, breaking news. The righteousness of God is revealed. This is the, literally the best news in all the world. Why? Listen to what Paul concludes, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, meaning it is a present day reality, it has happened now in this life. Since we have been justified by faith, we have 
This is a sweet word. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace has come. What's the opposite of peace? War. Rebellion. Strife. Enmity. That's what characterized the relationship between a righteous God and unrighteous human beings. But Paul is saying now, because we have been justified by faith, peace has come. We have peace with God. He's not angry at our sin anymore. And quite frankly, too many of us didn't realize he was angry to begin with. And that's a problem. But nonetheless, he is not angry anymore. We're not storing up for ourselves the wrath of God. The verdict is in. We who have embraced Christ have been declared once for all not guilty. Amen. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going who's to renew the indictment? Who's going to appeal the verdict? It is God who justifies. When Luther finally saw this, When he became aware of what this was teaching, listen to what he wrote. Changes quite a bit. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive. Indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole scripture became apparent to me. My mind raced through the scriptures as far as I I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies and other phrases. Now listen to this. Such as the work of God by which he makes us strong. The wisdom of God by which he makes us wise. The strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. Just as intensely as I had hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. Now stop and think for a moment about the fact that these two verses are only Paul's opening salvo of explaining the gospel. He's going to spend the next, chap- the, the, the next many chapters explaining in detail every piece of this equation. And the first thing he does after giving his thesis statement, verses 16 and 17, is to go straight after our heart's corruption. From verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul presents an airtight case that we truly do need saving. That we are sinners. That we are depraved. That we are guilty. And every single human being is under this indictment. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It's a universal, damning indictment. It's only after we are thoroughly convinced of our sinful condition does Paul turn the corner back to the good news. So, Flip over to chapter 3 if you're not there. 
verses 21 to 25. And I want us to listen for parallels. I want us to listen for similarities between this passage and chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. You see some similarities there? Verse 21, the righteousness of God. There's our phrase. It has been manifested. It has been revealed. It has been given to us apart from the law. Meaning you can't get to the righteousness that we need through the law. It won't get us there. Try though we may to obey God's law. It will only leave us condemned. Paul writes in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Nothing we can do will earn righteousness. Being a good person, being a moral person, being a kind person, a charitable person. You can spend your whole life building hospitals for poor sick kids in Africa. And you know how much righteousness that will earn you before God? Not one bit. Not one bit. Being baptized as a baby does not make you righteous. Acts of penance won't do it, as Luther well knew. Praying to Mary won't do it. Praying in general won't do it. Reading your Bible won't do it. Coming to church won't do it. Having dreams or visions or prophetic words won't do it. Giving all your money away won't do it. The righteousness that saves comes only as a gift from God through faith. And let me just add a little footnote here that I'm not going to spend any time defending. Even that faith is a gift of God. Lest anyone should boast. But just so we don't think Paul is throwing the law away, he tells us, That the law and the prophets actually bear witness to the righteousness of God. Remember, he had just quoted from Habakkuk. Paul is not making up new doctrine on the fly here. He's getting his theology straight from the Old Testament. Just so I meet meet Pastor Peter's mandate of bringing Genesis into every lesson. You know, he won't let you get up here unless you sign a contract saying, you're going to reference Genesis. Listen to Genesis chapter 15. Verses 1 to 6. This is the very beginning. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. 
Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, the father of Israel, the father of God's covenant people in the Old Testament. Abraham himself was justified by faith. And Paul in chapter 4 of Romans is going to spend some time explaining that, but he writes in verse 3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Believed God about what? Had faith in what? God's promises. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Did he see it in full? No. Could he have explained justification by faith in a coming Savior? Probably not. But by faith in what God did reveal to him, he was justified. He was declared righteous. This is the way God saves sinners. This is the only way God saves sinners. There's not some different way in the Old Testament. And when Jesus and Paul showed up, things changed. It's justification by faith alone from beginning to end. But a good question to ask at this point, question we need to ask is where specifically did that righteousness come from? Where does the righteousness we receive come from? We've, we've said it comes from God, but, but does he just create it ex nihilo? Like poof, here's some righteousness. I'll give this bit to, to Miss Anna. I'll give this bit to, to Andy. Is that how he does it? Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Who's the one man who disobeyed? Adam. In Adam, we all fail. In Adam, we became, by nature, sinners. Who's the one man who obeyed? Jesus. And by him, by his... Perfect obedience to God's law. His own righteousness, we are made righteous. The righteousness that God credits to us, that he imputes to us, is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is a real righteousness. Look back at verses 24 and 25, chapter 3. Let's try to summarize this. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What we've been talking about, what Paul is talking about here, is the doctrine known as justification by faith alone. This vocabulary of justification, that word, it comes from the legal word, legal world. From the law court. It's a declarative verb. In its theological sense, it means the legal declaration of our righteousness before God. Listen to how the Westminster Catechism puts it Justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which He pardons all their sins and accepts and accounts their whole persons as righteous in His sight. Not for anything worked into them or done by them, 
but only because of the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ imputed to them by God, received by faith alone. If I could paraphrase that in my own words, it would be this. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is the biblical truth that frees me from, cru- from the crushing weight of ever having to stand before God in my own bankruptcy. But instead, I am engulfed by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But just so we don't get things mixed up here, just so we don't make a wrong turn, that does not mean I have become in and of myself righteous. It is an alien righteous righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from without myself. Luther would come to call this doctrine a grand and sweet exchange. An exchange. Do you see the exchange here? You see what's happening? We've said that our sins are forgiven. We receive pardon. And not only that, but we, we receive the righteousness of Christ himself. But that's on one side of the exchange. In order for us to see the full cost of our justification, we have to look at the other side. And look at it, we must. And when we do look there, we will see the very Son of God himself hanging on a blood-soaked cross. As he absorbed the full measure of God's wrath. Wrath that was aimed at me. Wrath that was aimed at you. That's the exchange. And it's a scandal. It's an absolute scandal. When I, when I teach these fifth graders in here and begin to explain to them that they get to turn in someone's, someone else's work, I can just see their eyes growing wide. Like, that sounds like we're cheating. And I say, yes, that's exactly right. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So up through chapter 3, verse 25, the first part of 25 there anyway, we've seen how God saved and is saving a people for himself. Remember our conundrum. God's passion to save his people on one side, so to speak. We've seen that. How in justification by faith, God is bringing a people to himself. But that wasn't his only passion, was it? Our conundrum was that God's passion to save a people for himself and his passion to demonstrate his righteousness in the punishment of sin were seemingly headed for a collision. Look back one more time, chapter 3. We will finish with verses 25 and 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross, God's passion to save his people and his passion to demonstrate his righteousness met in a glorious, holy collision. Whereby, in order for God to welcome sinners into his presence, he put forth his perfect son. The son who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. The son who came and put on human flesh so that he would be killable. The son who was born under the law so that he may fulfill the law. The son who knew no sin. 
The son who obeyed God's law without a single flaw, utterly righteous, utterly pure, utterly innocent. This son, verse 25 tells us, God put forward as a propitiation. That word there means a wrath-appeasing or a wrath-satisfying substitute. It's an atoning sacrifice. God put forward his son as a propitiation to be the recipient of our punishment. To bear in his body the guilt and shame of our sin on the cross. At the cross, God's passion to save a people for himself and his passion to demonstrate his righteousness met head on. And when we see that, there is no conundrum at all. The only response is worship. For a sinner to be justified by God is no small thing. It cost nothing less. It cost nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to declare me righteous. To declare you righteous. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that's exactly what God has declared you. Nothing short of it. I want to ask you a question. What if you really believe that God is 100% for you? That He not only accepts you, but accepts you fully because of the perfect person and work of His Son? What if you believe that your best successes can't earn you any more access and your worst failures will never take any of it away? What if we really believe that? I'm in the Navy, so allow me to use a naval analogy. You know what a ship's ballast is? A ship's ballast is that compartment well below the ship's deck, well down in the hold of the ship that contains water. And its purpose is to stabilize the ship, to keep it from rocking and rolling in rough waters, keeps it upright. This doctrine of justification by faith alone is ballast for a Christian. If you embrace this, if this gets into your spiritual bloodstream, it will change how you live. It will have a stabilizing, steadying effect such such that your joy in God will be sustained in rough waters because you know it does not depend on you. When God justifies us, it is a once-for-all declaration of not guilty over our lives. It can never be changed, never erased, the verdict never thrown out. Not guilty now in this life, before a holy God, and not guilty on the very last day of judgment. Not guilty. So how can a just God save unjust sinners? Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Philippi, Almost as if in answer to our question. I think some of it is there in your notes, but I'm going to start a little before that. Indeed, I count everything as loss... Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Now pay attention. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends 
own faith. I love this doctrine. I love this gospel. I think we'll just stop right there this morning. Thank you all for being here.